Welcome to Script Bits, a show for writers, film buffs, and everyone in between. Each episode, we take a close look at one section of a great screenplay and find out what it can teach us about storytelling. This week, we'll investigate a surreal script bit from the screenplay for Hell or High Water. I'm Bruff Hansen, and this is Script Bits. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Script Bits. Today we are going to be examining a scene from the screenplay for Hell or High Water. As you may know by now, the structure of the show goes like this. First I give a brief introduction to the screenplay of the day, then I read one short section out loud, e.g. one script bit or beat, and finally we'll go through the chosen section together and discover what it has to teach us. Hell or High Water is a movie from 2017. It stars Chris Pine, Ben Foster, Jeff Bridges, and Gil Birmingham. It's directed by David McKenzie and is based on the Oscar-nominated screenplay by Taylor Sheridan. It's a story about two brothers who rob a series of banks in West Texas in order to save their family ranch, while two old-school Texas rangers pursue them. Our good friend Wikipedia identifies its genre as a neo-western heist film. How fancy. Today's script bit begins on page 33 of the shooting draft, with the direction, We Look Out of the Windshield. Before this scene, the bank-robbing brothers, Toby and Tanner, have just hit their third bank of the day, and two Texas rangers, Marcus and Parker, are heading to the most recent crime scene to investigate. We begin inside Marcus's Lincoln, as he and Parker drive along a two-lane blacktop highway. All right, here we go. We look out the windshield. Black smoke blocks out the setting sun. Marcus. What in the hell is that? The road winds up a hill. They crest it and see cattle. Hundreds of them, standing in the road. Marcus locks the brakes. The Lincoln slides and squeals to a stop. They sit in silence, surrounded by cattle. Parker. Good lord, Marcus. Cowboys on horseback race through the cattle, dismount, and frantically cut the barbed wire fence along the far side of the road. Marcus leans out his window. Marcus. Hey, y'all burning this field? Cowboy. Why in the shit would we do that? This kicked up along the highway. Wind keeps turning. Goddamn if it ain't been chasing us for miles. Whichever way we go, this damn fire follows. The cowboy is on his horse and riding up toward Marcus's window. Marcus, wish we could do something for you. Cowboy, it'd be easier if I just stood here and let it turn me to ashes. Put me out of my misery. It's the 21st century and I'm racing a fire to the river with 300 cattle. No wonder my kids don't want to do this nonsense for a living. The sun has set. The cowboy whistles and three dogs spring from nowhere nipping at the heels of the cattle. One dog jumps on the back of a cow, backlit by the dying sun. Its silhouette runs from the back of one to another and another, terrifying the exhausted cattle into action. The cattle moo and moan and move through the thirty-foot hole in the fence. Parker, want to call it in? Marcus, it'll burn out when it hits the Brazos. No one to call around here anyway. These boys is on their own. The cattle pass, cowboys whooping and hollering behind them. Marcus starts the car down the road, which is now covered in cow shit. Marcus crests the rise in the road, and the fire comes into view. 
a vast expanse of smoldering black earth in its wake. Across the road, coyotes, one after the other, trot. Up ahead, a deer, then another, and another, seeking salvation from the fire. Parker, looks like Noah's Ark. Marcus, if the Ark never showed. Parker, slow down. Marcus looks at him cross-eyed. Marcus, you see that fire to the left of us? Parker, there's animals all over the damn road and you're... The car jerks to a stop. Standing in the middle of the road, in the headlights, is a cougar. It looks at them like a man caught on the toilet. Turns to run back toward the fire, then turns again and bolts over the barbed wire fence, running off through the field. Parker, I never seen one of them before. Marcus's face is one of wonder, as though all this chaos is one last gift before the tedium of no purpose consumes him. Marcus, me neither. Marcus opens his door and steps out onto the road. Fire moves toward them through the field, crawling low to the ground like a snake. As the dull orange of the setting sun disappears, the neon orange of the fire bleeds toward them like lava. Two more deer trot across the road, through the headlights, an exodus of dozens of rabbits. Parker, this is the craziest thing I ever seen. Marcus, what a day. Wow, that is beautiful, isn't it? It's more like a poem than a screenplay. Okay, so first I want to say a few words about the species of scene we're dealing with. There are certain scenes in every story that want to live outside the story's main action. These are breaths, so to speak, from the plot. A time when our characters and our audience get a chance to slow down and contemplate the story's larger themes and ideas. These stolen moments are both a break in the action and an opportunity for reflection, profundity, and poetry. The most famous example of this device is the gravedigger scene in Hamlet, when the Danish prince discovers the skull of the court jester Yorick, whom Hamlet knew as a child. This breath invites Hamlet to reflect on death and memory, with his characteristic brilliance and dark irony, before he's thrust back into the dangers of the play. This beat from Hell or High Water falls squarely in that tradition. The scene is an opening that allows us to muse on all the many overlapping ideas haunting this tale. So, before we proceed further, I invite you to first consider some questions about your story. Does your narrative ever stop and take a breath? Would a moment of respite in your action help us to go deeper into its themes? And how could such an oasis enrich the world you're trying to create? Now, these moments of breath can take as many different forms and contain as many different themes as there are stories to tell. But this scene shows us an innovative way to go about creating such space. Sheridan uses this section to explore what is arguably the most important theme in the movie, its setting. The setting of Hell or High Water is West Texas, but for Sheridan, the idea of setting goes well beyond the boundaries of a mere geographical location. In this surreal sequence, he uses the logic of dreams to create a setting that is a 
living, four-dimensional entity, a plane of existence suspended between modernity and deep time. And he portrays it all with a poeticism that is as simple as it is expansive. I want to introduce you to the concept of dream logic. Dream logic, as its name suggests, departs from regular logic in many fascinating ways. Our conscious, rational minds typically work overtime to make coherent meaning of the world around us, and our day-to-day -day reality, for the most part, makes sense, though less so these days. Dream logic defies our meaning-making minds. Dreams connect contradictory and logically incompatible images and ideas while evoking ambiguous and sometimes extraordinary emotions. In the beginning of this bit, dream logic helps us depart from the world as it's known to these characters and re-emerge into the surreal. Let's go back to the text. We look out the windshield. Black smoke blocks out the setting sun. Marcus, what in the hell is that? The road winds up a hill. They crest it and see cattle, hundreds of them, standing in the road. So, in one moment, our characters are in a Lincoln, driving along a highway, and in the next, they're face to face with a wall of smoke so black that it blots out the sun. Before they can get oriented, they are surrounded by a herd of cattle. This is a fine example of the use of dream logic, an abrupt reorganization of our character's context that parallels the advent of a dream. Unlike our waking lives, our dreams are magical, mystical realms that permit all sorts of impossibilities. Parker and Marcus are not literally dreaming, but the sudden onset of smoke and cows momentarily untethers them from everything they previously took for granted. Like a skilled hypnotist, a good writer can use dream logic to momentarily dismantle the commonplace, unmoor their characters from a world that makes sense, and invite all of us into a visual meditation of unspecified meaning. So, I pose to you two more questions. Are there places where you can bring dreamlike events and elements to your story? Would the judicious application of dream logic help shake up the order of your world? So, what does Sheridan want to show us now that he has opened the door to this new dreamlike world? He wants us to ruminate on the textured and nuanced setting of West Texas, and he accomplishes this by first playing with time. Let's read on. They sit in silence, surrounded by cattle. Parker, good lord, Marcus. Cowboys on horseback race through the cattle, dismount, and frantically cut the barbed wire on the fence along the far side of the road. Marcus leans out his window. Marcus, hey, y'all burning this field? Cowboy, why in the shit would we do that? This kicked up along the highway. Wind keeps turning. Goddamn if it ain't been chasing us for miles. Whichever way we go, 
this damn fire follows. Dream logic has created a portal for the impossible to enter this scene. And what's the first thing to step through? Cowboys. Cowboys are figures from a lost and forgotten time. They exist today, but the image of two men on horseback wearing large-brimmed hats and driving cattle from a raging fire is still visually anachronistic. Remember, according to dream logic, anything is now possible, including the paradox of many different periods of history existing all at once. The arrival of cowboys on the scene reminds us that our 21st century story is taking place on land that used to teem with these mythical men on horses. We learn, in other words, that West Texas is not simply a place on a map, but a four-dimensional location that exists in relationship to its own unique past. Sheridan then expands on the meaning of the cowboy's presence, only this time, instead of using imagery, he gives one of the cowboys the chance to reflect. Let's listen to the words. The cowboy is on his horse and riding up toward Marcus's window. Marcus, wish we could do something for you. Cowboy, it'd be easier if I just stood here and let it turn me to ashes, put me out of my misery. It's the 21st century and I'm racing a fire to the river with 300 cattle. No wonder my kids don't want to do this nonsense for a living. Like Hamlet at the gravesite, the cowboy now has the space to reflect on the state of his existence with bitter irony. From there, the scene continues to muse on this tragic time gone by, and because it is a film, this musing can take the form of poetic imagery. The sun has set. The cowboy whistles and three dogs spring from nowhere, nipping at the heels of the cattle. One dog jumps on the back of a cow, backlit by the dying sun. Its silhouette runs from the back of one to another and another, terrifying the exhausted cattle into action. The cattles moo and moan and move through the 30-foot hole in the fence. In storytelling, settings exist on a broad time continuum. They have a past, a present, and a future. Can you give us a sense of your setting across time to help us understand its significance? These words and images tell a tragic story of a setting that's torn between two eras, a rapidly fading past and our hyper-modern world. This brings me to another way that this scene enlarges our conception of its setting. As we move through the scene, it becomes clear that West Texas, as it exists in the 21st century, is in fact a dying world. Let me show you what I mean. The cattle moo and moan and move through the 30-foot hole in the fence. Parker, want to call it in? Marcus, it'll burn out when it hits the Brazos. No one to call around here anyway. These boys is on their own. The cattle pass. Cowboys whooping and hollering behind them. Marcus starts the car down the road, which is now covered in cow shit. The rest of this screenplay 
goes to great pains to describe this landscape of moribund towns surrounded by arid fields. And now we encounter what might as well be a ghost from a glorious past, this living cowboy who's somehow managing to hold onto a profession that faded into irrelevance long ago. When Parker asks Marcus if there is any way to help the cowboys save their cattle from the fire, Marcus replies that the cowboys are on their own. Our setting now consists of a physically barren landscape that is mostly empty, and in which any cowboys you might encounter will be the last of their kind. This is not exactly a thriving utopia. Marcus's reply brings up another point about what makes the West Texas of hell or high water a dying world. Philosophically speaking, the idea that humanity is on its own, that is, without a god or gods to guide or protect them, is an idea that separates modern humans from their forebears. Ever since Nietzsche declared that God is dead, one plight of the proverbial modern man has entailed seeking meaning in a meaningless world. Now, whatever you may personally think about the existence of God, when we look over the history of storytelling broadly, there is a distinct separation between pre-modern characters, whose stories exist in some relation to a living deity, and modern characters, who must take on the challenges of existence all alone. Marcus's reply, these boys is on their own, indicates that this is a setting without a god and, therefore, any higher meaning. The scene reaffirms this idea as it moves on. Marcus crests the rise in the road and the fire comes into view a vast expanse of smoldering black earth in its wake. Across the road, coyotes, one after the other, trot across the road. Up ahead, a deer, then another, and another, seeking salvation from the fire. Parker, looks like Noah's Ark, Marcus, if the Ark never showed. So we drift further into this scene's thematic meditation, and animals of all kinds run across the road to escape the fire, our characters, both Christians, remark that this moment is similar to the story of Noah's Ark, only in this modern version, the Ark never showed. Noah's Ark is a story from the Bible. God, fed up with the sins of early mankind, sends a great flood to the earth, sparing only Noah, whom God instructs to build a great boat, or ark, to save the animals from destruction. The story of a great flood appears all over the world and predates the Bible by thousands of years. It's so prevalent across cultures that scholars debate whether it is a universal archetype that emerged independently among different populations, or if it has its origins in an actual flood, that struck a group of our earliest ancestors and spread with them as they migrated around the world. Either way, it is a very, very old story, and it sheds light on one of our species' earliest beliefs that we must both fear and seek salvation from a higher power. This section subverts the myth of Noah 
by posing a hypothetical scenario. What would the story of Noah look like set in our modern, godless world? Well, Marcus's joke states the answer. With no god to warn anybody about the flood, when it hits, the animals would be on their own. And, in one final inversion of the biblical story, these animals are not escaping water, but a wall of fire. Everyone, in hell or high water, from the animals on up, are on their own. There is no meaning to this random natural disaster, no higher witness to protect or warn them about its arrival, and no hope of salvation after the disasters occurred. A dying world, then, is not only losing its history and identity, but any semblance of meaning and hope. Whatever location you ultimately select as the backdrop for your narrative, you'll want to know its politics, history, and economy. But I'm going to suggest that you begin to think of your story's setting as a separate, sentient being. This means having a strong grasp on what I might call its spiritual attributes, its disposition, its moods, and, most importantly, where it is in its life cycle. There's a big difference between a setting that is just coming into being and one that is in stasis, transition, on the wane, currently dying, and long dead. Where is your setting in its life cycle? The answer can have great ramifications for your story. Lastly, I'd like to touch on the poetry of this scene, which arises out of simple words clearly expressed. Here's the last movement of the piece. The car jerks to a stop. Standing in the middle of the road in the headlights is a cougar. It looks at them like a man caught on the toilet, turns to run back toward the fire, then turns again and bolts over the barbed wire fence, running off through the field. Parker, I never seen one of them before. Marcus's face is one of wonder, as though all this chaos is one last gift before the tedium of no purpose consumes him. Marcus, me neither. Marcus opens his door and steps out onto the road. Fire moves toward them through the field, crawling low to the ground like a snake. As the dull orange of the setting sun disappears, the neon orange of the fire bleeds toward them like lava. Two more deer trot across the road. Through the headlights, an exodus of dozens of rabbits. Parker. This is the craziest thing I ever seen. Marcus. What a day. It's at this point that Sheridan really lets loose, and the result is a sprawling expression that touches on everything we've discussed, a dream logic that plays with time and paints a canvas of elemental images, cougar, fire, sun. But I want you to note how a plain-spoken style can still construct a matrix of robust symbolism. This scene draws our attention to a vast, invisible landscape of ideas without resorting to fancy rhetorical tricks and manages to evoke sensations we may not even be able to articulate. The style suggests that complexity, 
beauty can arise from basic vocabulary. To paraphrase an old adage, don't use a $5 word when a five-cent word will do, especially in screenwriting. So how does one write with such poetry about such complex ideas? In an interview with the New York Times, Sheridan said that he wrote this Oscar-nominated screenplay in less than three weeks. He said, quote, I don't outline. I sit down to write, and I take the ride. If something starts to not feel right, I go back to the last place that felt like jazz to me. I spend a lot of time on this podcast dissecting these script bits in an attempt to understand why they move us. Obviously, I think this kind of investigation is an essential practice for all writers. However, as this quotation from Sheridan suggests, the ultimate art of writing a scene like this consists in knowing your setting so well that you can loosen your grip on your critical mind and let the imagery flow. The result will be a scenescape dense with meaning a kaleidoscope of symbols and themes that reach beyond our rational minds and into our imaginations. One last word on setting. Sheridan has an instinctive sense for this tragic, listless world, its flinty beauty, its slow decay. As you unveil your setting, don't just show your audience a series of photographs. Reveal also your sensibilities. Teach us what this place means to you on an emotional level. Write with the wisdom that is already in your bones. Thanks for listening to this episode of Script Bits. I'd like to thank Graham Webster for composing our music. And if you want updates and other information on the latest episodes, please follow us on Twitter at ScriptBitsShow or find our website, scriptbitspodcast.com. And you can always reach out to me personally at bruff at scriptbitspodcast.com. That's B-R-O-U-G-H at scriptbitspodcast.com. My name is Bruff Hansen, and this is Script